Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Um, Can you hear me? Caller? Caller? Hi. I'm here. Hi. Hi, Merle. How are you? Thank you for standing by. I'm pretty good, I thank you. I apologize for the technical difficulty. I had to reconfigure everything. So uh, it's a little bit off. Let me just briefly say to anyone who's been listening and tuned in that I apologize for the issues of technical uh, problems. And I want to reintroduce Merle to you. He is holding workshops on making sense of people. And basically, he is also uh, doing consultations, author events, speaking engagements, workshops, and intensive therapy of 10 hours of deep work over five consecutive days. If you come with a problem or issues that you wish to focus on, and he will resolve or at least make significant progress, you can call him and see whenever you are ready for an intensive therapy program. And he is also dealing with topics on unspoken boundaries, tools for work and life. This is in training on energetic boundaries, how to recognize them, stay inside of them, and keep people out of them. Uh, the tools also teach first aid so that you have additional tools when your boundaries are violated. There is a short workshop that he does that teaches these tools and along a full-day workshop that assists in finding and healing the reasons you're unable to hold your boundaries. TheUnspokenBoundaries.com for more information. Merle, again, thank you so much for staying on the line. And I see you called in from 4883. Yes. Okay, thank you. So I want to turn the show over to you. And again, anyone who is listening from wherever this post is linked, I am going to go back and let them know that we had technical difficulties for the first 30 minutes. And I believe that you know, this is meant to be, so I'm giving you the platform, and please speak from these issues of uh, healing people, human beings, who have allowed their boundaries to be broken and are in crisis and need some answers. And also, at the end of the broadcast, if you will list how they can reach you, and um, sure. the services that you provide. Thank you, and I will turn the show over to you. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you so much. I'm not completely sure of the format, so initially I'm just going to speak about who I am, and I believe that there will be people calling in. So uh, I'm a licensed psychotherapist in California, and I've been practicing for about 30 years. Um, many, many years ago when I was an intern and just beginning, I tried to start a group out in uh, Contra Costa County, and I got flooded with all of these guys who were uh, heterosexually married, but who were bi or gay and needed to talk about that. And it turned out a very large number of them were sexually abused as children. I 
come to believe that our specialties find us, and this one found me. It's one of two major ones that I do, the other one being gynecomastia, uh, which men with female-like breasts. Uh, so this is a big topic, and it doesn't get a lot of conversation. I mean, thanks to the Boy Scouts and the Catholic Church, we have more conversation about this, but I have for years done a workshop called Shedding Light on the Sexual Abuse of Boys and the Men They Become, and I couldn't get anyone to come, or very, very few people. It's our society, we socialize women that it's okay to be victims, and we socialize men that it's not okay to be victims. And so from the moment that you pop out, you're suddenly responsible for your mother and sisters and taking care of them, regardless of the obvious inability to do so. It's a setup. It's programming. And so consequently, men are never allowed to be vulnerable or weak or to acknowledge that they are powerless in a situation. They're always supposed to be in control and in charge. And so consequently, this sets up a lifetime of trying to fulfill that programming that they downloaded from the very beginning. And often we are weak and vulnerable and not in charge and are victimized. And if you can't own that, you can't heal it. At its very most basic, it is really about learning to heal that wound and to own it. You can't change it if you don't own it. The most classic example is if you have a drinking problem, if you're an alcoholic, until you own and accept the fact that you're an alcoholic, you can't do anything about it. Otherwise, you're in this endless struggle of denial and wrestling and trying to overpower something that you're denying that you are. And so as a sexual abuse survivor or victim, and that is the major difference between working with men and women, is, is that with women, you, they walk in, they tell you they were raped, they were sexually abused, you immediately call them a survivor. But with men, because of this programming around not being allowed to be victimized, not allowed to be weak, not allowed to be vulnerable, not allowed to be overwhelmed in any way, we have to first talk about what it means to be a victim and how that feels and how that makes you feel about being male or being a man. And that is a huge obstacle for many guys to overcome. So going back to the beginning, how does this all happen? Is this because in our society, traditionally and still in certain parts of our society, children are seen as chattel. They're seen as property. They're an extension of the adult or adults. They're not their own being. And so they're just there to be used. And uh, Mick Hunter, who I'm quite fond of, has written a number of books on boys who were sexually abused, uh, describes abuse as any time that an adult uses a child to meet the needs of the adult. Yes, that's quite broad, and it's true. Because within the definition of sexual abuse that I use, and there's certainly plenty of evidence to support it, is, is that that includes emotional incest. It includes boundary crossing. And there are two different kinds of sexual abuse. There's overt and covert. So when we think of sexual abuse, we think of the overt, the child being uh, sexually penetrated or uh, used uh, overtly sexually for a sexual act for the gratification of the adult or 
maybe the child may receive pleasure out of that as well. It's certainly common, very possible. But covert abuse is some ways more difficult. Uh, the act of a parent punishing a child and the, ch- and the parent getting a sexual charge out of doing this. The parent, the child will feel that sexual charge and will absorb it. The uh, mother intruding upon, intruding upon a child, uh, I'm going to really talk about boys here, though this all applies to girls as well uh, and women. Uh, the mother intruding upon his dating life and uh, I remember someone many years ago telling me that back during the disco era, he was coming down to to go out in his angel flights for those of, of a certain age, you know what that means, very tight uh, pants, so I'll leave it at that. And uh, she told him he needed to take off his underwear. I mean, that's intrusive. Uh, there's a current show on uh, uh, Netflix, I believe, called Sex Education, in which this mother is continually intruding her sex life upon her son and intruding upon his wanting to know whether he's masturbating, wanting to know whether he's ejaculating. This is absurd. Uh, A parent should not be intruding upon the child's uh, privacy like that. If the child comes to talk to the parent about it, that's one thing. And the parent can make themselves available to talk about those things if there's a need. But to insert themselves into the child's sexual experience is incest. It's emotional incest. It's covert abuse. Parents using sexual uh, punishments, uh, forcing enemas, uh, forcibly popping pimples, body inspections. I can't tell you how many boys uh, are have their genitals inspected by their parents to make sure they're developing properly. This is a violation at the most basic level of your personal sense of self. In the boundary workshop I do, I talk about that a parent has to merge with a child from the age of zero to 18 months. At 18 months, the parent needs to start withdrawing. That first 18 months, there is no sense of self there of the child. They're empty inside, and they need the reflection, and they need the merger of the parent with the child in order to not feel alone in the world. Because if they are alone and isolated, that's the beginning of other developmental issues, psychologically speaking. And then at 18 months, they start pulling out, and by three years of age, a parent needs to no longer be merged with the child because the child is beginning to develop a sense of self, and that fragile sense of self needs the space to be who they are. And so this is just symbolic of all these other intrusions, that if a parent only can see a child as an extension of themselves instead of this separate being, they're going to use the child in a way that meets the parent's needs. And if the parent, all too often the child is, Uh, not allowed to have their own identity, their own opinion, their own ideas, their own experience. The parent tries to forcibly make the child see the world through their lens. This this creates a whole host of other problems. But I'm just pointing out that all too often a father sees his son's penis as an extension of his own and is too invested in his son's sex life. A mother... Uh, can be obsessed with his, her son's sex life and sexual energy 
maybe jealous, inter- interfering with uh, his dating as well, because no girl's ever going to be good enough for him because she wants him to himself. Emotional incest is incredibly common. It's, it's enshrined in various cultures like Italian culture, uh, Latin culture, that the, the son is there to meet the mother's needs. And all too often, the father is not available. He has uh, checked out for one reason or another. So the mom turns to the son in order to get her psychosexual needs met. While it may not be overt, it certainly is covert. And she uses him as a confidant to lean on to support her. That is not the child's job. It is the parent's job to take care of the child. It's not the child's job to take care of the parent. And so consequently, there's a larger dynamic here that comes into play of when we were had a Nigerian society, everybody was at home. Mom, dad, the kids, they all lived in the same place. They all see each other all day long, in and out. They worked together. They did everything together. So there was more of a balance. But when we moved into the industrial uh, society, the dad went away, and the mom was home taking care of the kids. And so consequently, he wasn't there to meet mom's needs. I believe it is the father's job to protect the son from the uh, mother, and it is the mother's job to protect the father from the son, I mean, from the daughter, in order to allow the children to have their space. That The parent's job is to meet each other's needs so they don't turn to the children for that. If they do, it's a problem. And if you have this kind of emotional incest where the child is meeting one of the parent's emotional needs, that's problematic, and it's also going to impair the child's development. Again, we don't talk about this much, but it is really the underlying cause of a lot of rage, a lot of uh, um, inability to be intimate in a relationship, because what happens to these boys growing up, again, I'm mostly talking about boys here, but it all applies to girls, uh, is that they will... um, be able to get into a relationship with a woman. It's all hot and heavy and sometimes it's sexual. But the moment that the sex starts to cool off, then he's gone. Because he learned to be loved, he was going to have to be devoured by the other. And to be devoured by the other is not a pleasant experience. In fact, it's quite intrusive and it's quite unpleasant. We're back to my unspoken boundaries workshop. But this really applies across the board. And so what happens is he meets this girl, they have a hot and heavy time, and everything's lovely. And then the moment the sex starts to cool off, he starts to withdraw. And then if it cools off a lot, he's gone emotionally. And if they've gotten married and had a kid along the way, they may still be married, but he is not there. And so she has this wonderful, adorable baby, or most often a baby boy, who loves her unconditionally. And it's filling that big emptiness inside. And consequently, she then pours everything into him. To a certain degree, that's what the mom does, but she can't intrude upon him if he's going to grow up and be able to be in a healthy relationship with a woman. We learn our ways of being with, the, with people in the world through our mom and dad, or our parents. This will teach us how to be in relationship with that ginger. So the relationship you have, your straight male, and, you, and your relationship with your mom is a setup for your relationship with women. If you're a straight woman in your relationship with dad, and then you're – so that's the setup for how you're going to be in a relationship with men. If dad was absent, you're going to be 
attracted to a, a father who's not really there. If mom was intrusive, you're going to be attracted to these intrusive uh, women, but then you're going to push back and resent and be angry, and it's a setup. We don't talk enough about how this works. In our families, we learn a dance of intimacy. That dance of intimacy we, we, we're programmed with, we take that out into the world, and we're unconsciously looking for someone who has the same dance. And what we've done when we find is we found somebody whose family pathology fits with my family pathology. And consequently, we can recreate our childhoods. And this is why so many relationships fail. This is why so many relationships become sexless. This is why so many people are unhappy. So back to sexual abuse. So it has a wide-ranging impact, and it all depends upon what the initial experience is. Our initial sexual experience sets the frame for our expectation for world. So if your initial sexual experience is to be violated, there's a certain reality that you've then taken in because you didn't know. If sex was really pleasurable, you may be lost in the pleasure. The downside of having a extremely pleasurable first experience in abuse and I'm, I'm again I'm kind of a pretty wide definition of this is is that you're if you aren't psychosexually and physically avail, ready to process that level of charge then you're going to be overwhelmed and that's going to again, be your imprint for what sex is you have to be completely overwhelmed and devoured by the experience Okay, so let's talk about a 14-year-old boy with a 19-year-old girl. She's a lot more developed physically, hopefully psychologically. He is a 14-year-old boy. He's basically a walking hormone and not a lot of consciousness to go with that typically. And so consequently, he may find it to be an incredibly pleasurable experience, but he's also then going to be overwhelmed by that experience and have she has a lot more ability to create a much greater sexual charge than he does. And consequently, he's going to think that's what sex is, and it's not. And he's going to be stuck. So what happens is you get psychosexually stuck at the age of the abuse. You may develop some workarounds to some degree, but until you go back and work through the abuse and the trauma of that, and even the most pleasurable experience, there's a trauma aspect. I'll talk about that in a second. But the you just keep replaying that. And it's a called a repetition compulsion, or in gestalt therapy, we talk about it being uh, trying to complete the gestalt. You're trying to resolve it. And so you just keep going back to doing the same thing again. Uh, a... a uh, People who keep going back and doing the same thing. I'm trying to think of guys who uh, try and find sex in public bathrooms or we have sexual compulsion where they're just towing one hookup after another after another, and it's just the, the, they can't get out of that cycle. That's all sex is to them. They're just in this repetition compulsion trying to resolve whatever that initial experience or initial experiences were, and until they do, they can't get out of that. They're stuck. If they're four years old, they're a four-year-old trying to have sex. If they're 15, they're a 15-year-old trying to have sex. And a 15-year-old boy with a 
even probably 16, 17, 18, 19, older, 30, 40-year-old woman cannot handle the amount of sexual charge that he's going to get. It's simply not possible. And boys in our society are considered lucky. They're not considered victims if they have sexual contact with an older woman, older girl. Where a girl, if you put the reverse, if you have an 18-year-old boy and a 15-year-old girl, everybody's going to be outraged. If you have a 15-year-old boy and an 18-year-old girl, suddenly he's lucky. Sorry, it doesn't work that way. And because boys, again, aren't allowed to be victims, aren't allowed to feel overwhelmed by that experience. I mean, when I deal with somebody, uh, a young man who's had this experience, I can't tell you how many guys I've worked with who had sex with their school teachers and how damaging that is. They're endlessly sexually compulsive. There's a, a line when a younger boy has sexual, uh, sexually abused by an older woman, that they're, they're often on this quest to service every woman in the world because the way they got attention, the way they got pleasure, and this was a very pleasurable experience for most of them, was through this seduction. And so they're just repeating this. So they aren't really capable of real intimacy, of deepening, of being vulnerable. They're just out there doing what they have to do for women in order to feel that attention and to feel that love. So, and if it's an unpleasurable experience, it may, it's then going to set up the whole container for uh, them to, to be avoidant of sex or to be really controlling. Again, if you're a four-year-old trying to have sex or an eight-year-old or a 12-year-old, it's not going to be as complex, as deep, and as uh, much as it can be, because you're again stuck in that loop. Um, are there any callers or any questions? I just feel like I'm talking here a lot. It would be useful to have a dialogue with someone, uh, so because I have a lot of information, uh, I don't know that I can just keep talking for, for two hours without any any uh, feedback at all. Um, hi, Meryl. I'm here. Hi. And what, what I want is what you're doing right now is that you're laying the framework. You're explaining that uh-huh. there are things that you've said that um, have been really enlightening for me and have really brought some light to a lot of things. And that that's what the audience needs right now because I'm, okay. I'm having a lot right. of aha moments. So I really don't want to interrupt your flow, but I am, I'm listening okay. and I'm, you know, I will interject um, as needed, but right now I've, I've learned a lot. And so the things that you have said, I'm going to circle back with you about it. So if you'll pick up okay. uh, right where you right. said, because there was something that uh, in particular that you said in terms of the impact that a different parent had on the child oh, yeah. and their development. It sets so, up everything. Yeah, so that, um, <laughs> please, keep, keep going. Okay, so. Uh, Thank you. Sure. Thank you. I, it just, that really helped me a lot. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I mean, the way that a parent treats the child, I mean, they're literally programming your child. You're downloading programming from the moment that you pop out and that they start interacting and smiling at you and touching you and changing your diapers. This is all programming about how you're going to interact with people in the world. And children, all of us, 
reach grand conclusions about how the world works before we have enough data to reach those grand conclusions. That's simply the way we're wired. If the child is consistently put down and humiliated by the parent, they're going to reach the conclusion very early on that they're stupid, they're unworthy, they're a failure, they're all of these things because that's all the data they have and they're trying to make sense out of everything. A baby is, is simply collecting data in order to try and organize that into a schema that makes sense. And we, we get to these schemas. And so if we have a critical mom and a loving dad, women are going to be awful and mean and dads are going to be wonderful. I keep meeting these guys who uh, are sexually or heterosexual, that they're wired sexually to be attracted to women but they had these awful mothers who were intrusive or critical and so forth. And so they can go have great sex with women, but they had a great dad who was emotionally available to them. And their real emotional connection is to men. So I call them as having a, a straight penis and a gay heart. And so what they need to do is to resolve the attachment issue with mom so that they can then truly be available emotionally and sexually to women. That's the resolution. And so the opposite is often true to a, a loving mom who's there and so forth and a, either abusive or a distant or non-existent dad. That creates a certain kind of hole in a child. They have to have these parental figures in order to learn how to be in relationship with people. It is just the most basic, most profound programming that happens. And we take it way too lightly. Uh, and parents aren't really educated around how to do this. And sexually, since that's our topic of the day, this is that watching the interaction between mom and dad is what sets up their programming around what intimacy looks like, what, what relationships look like. And let me speak just for a moment about what intimacy really is. Intimacy is the act of being vulnerable with another person. You take the risk of exposing who you really are to this person and risk the possibility of being rejected. And in relationship, if we get to know people more and more and more, reveal deeper and deeper parts of ourselves. That is what real sexuality is. That's what real, when you get to these deep tantric states that are really where time literally stops in the middle of sex and you're just, it slows down and, and every moment is exquisite. And so, but you have to get more and more naked, emotionally speaking, with the other person to get to that. That is the whole point and the benefit of a long-term monogamous relationship. And a monogamous relationship is the commitment to meet the other person's needs sexually and not use it as a bargaining chip. If you don't buy me that, I won't give you sex. Or if you won't do this, I'm not going to give you sex. That is a violation of the relationship that's a violation of the trust. And as far as I'm concerned, it's the end of the relationship because they have negated the contract that you made. I mean, if you're abusive to someone and they decide not to have sex with you, I think that's a legitimate cause, but that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about just the normal intercourse of daily life. 
and the, the point of being in the monogamous relationship is to be there to focus all of your sexual energy on this other person. That's where you get to that vulnerability that you're trusting that they're going to be there to meet your needs. And if they're not, then the two of you need to have that conversation. Okay, so let's go back to sexual abuse here. There are, at the initial impact of sexual abuse, there are uh, five primary ways that, that guys respond. And again, this applies to women as well. Is that um, when you have, I'm going to use some analogies here. Hopefully they'll make sense. So when an uh, you have a zebra in Africa. You have a lion chasing it. The zebra gets all uh, worked up. Understandably, he may die here shortly. And so he's running. And if the zebra gets caught by the lion, the zebra will simply freeze. They will appear compliant, and they will just sort of relax. That's going on the outside. On the inside, everything's still the, – the pulse is – pounding and they're on hyper alert for is there a way for me to escape and so this is the and so what happens is if the lion if the zebra for some reason is able to escape the grasp of the lion he will wander off and shake discharging all of that pent-up charge inside of himself this is the natural human thing that has to do but but the same thing happens to a child and so consequently if a child is overwhelmed and overpowered by an adult, they're simply going to comply because their job is to survive. And that survival is paramount. And so they may look compliant on the outside, and these people may be then project what they want onto the child. They're going to show them pleasure, and the child may feel pleasure in the experience. That's going to create a whole other level of confusion down the road. But they're going to experience what they're going to experience, but they're also experience overwhelm and terror and confusion. And you know, they're all charged up inside because something strange is happening to them. They're completely out of control. And this person is dangerous to them. So consequently, if they, which most do make it through that experience, they need to be able to shake they need to be able to discharge that. And we don't give permission for people to do that. I had a medical procedure uh, many years ago, and I told – it was quite intrusive, and I told them, if I started to shake, do not sedate me. Let me shake because I'm discharging the, the PTSD. And so, so, again, something that people don't talk about or isn't really acknowledged. But we need to – our bodies are wired. We have this amazing biology that keeps us healthy. And if we aren't allowed to do what our body needs us to do, we're not going to be able to do that. And a child is probably not going to have the opportunity to do that. So anyway, so freezing, compliance. And so they're just there. And so there are – I'm going to give you five basic responses that can be unique. that can be a combination thereof. Or it can be one specific one. Uh, the next one would be occluded memory or repressed memory or, uh, or dissociation. So uh, occluded memory is, is basically where you just block it out. That this memory of this experience is so horrific 
that you don't believe on the non-conscious level that you can survive this if you remember it. You have nothing you can do about it, and, you just, and so you just put a wall between you and it, and it doesn't exist. The impact is still there on the system, but it no longer exists. You can dissociate. It means uh, the classic is to leave your body, go up on the ceiling and watch from there or just leave. That's the leaving is more like uh, the occluded memory. The dissociation is literally to step out of your body so that you can watch it. Children do this naturally. As a child, if we are growing up in a difficult household, it's very common for us to feel our way around corners and say, is mom okay today? Is dad okay? Is that room safe for me to walk into? So we learn very early how to leave our bodies. And while that's a great strategy for a child, it's not a great strategy as an adult. And that's what my Unspoken Boundaries class is about, how to keep you in your body so that you can get more information from inside than you can outside. Because the moment you leave yourself, you're opening yourself up in a lot of bad ways. Um, so the occluded memory, uh, I'm going to talk about that just a bit more, is that there's often a screen memory. So uh, we create a screen uh, or a false memory that, that distracts us from that. So I had a client who was sexually abused at night in his bed by his father. His father would walk up the steps to his bed, and he got trained that the moment he started hearing those steps, he would just leave. And he, the very first time he remembers going to the ceiling, but he doesn't remember anything beyond that. But what happened was is that as he grew up, he discovered that he had a – fear of tall buildings. So walking in downtown San Francisco or New York, Chicago, and seeing all these tall buildings was just dizzying. Look, you could not look up at these buildings. So he went and got some therapy on this phobia because it's such an odd, strange phobia. And so the result was, this is that when he started doing some EMDR on that phobia, is that all of a sudden his head went back a penis went down his throat and he dissociated. It was the unblocking of that screen memory to the real one. There's a movie, a play, a book called Mysterious Skin that is really, really good. Uh, best depiction of boys sexually abused as children I think I've seen on film. The only other possible candidate in that category is The Boys of St. Vincent. Two really, really brilliant movies. Neither one easy to watch, but really informative and quite powerful. But in Mysterious Skin, uh, this boy and this girl actually uh, developed this obsession with alien abduction. And so that has become their screen memory for uh, the sexual abuse that they encountered as a child. And it's a powerful, painful, painful film. And I use excerpts of it in my uh, workshop on the topic when I get a chance to give it. Okay, so we've talked about occluded memory, talked about screen memory repression. All right, so uh, the next uh, uh, one that I want to talk about in terms of the five is oh, eroticizing the shame. The um, so when a child is being sexually abused by an adult. Again, one of the things that aren't talked about is, is that the child absorbs the shame of the adult. Is that they just because they're little sponges. They're not only taking on 
data. Uh, I mean, they're taking on data of all kinds. It isn't just words. It's actions. It's emotions. If mom is upset at dad, the child is going to feel it. And unfortunately, it's a child being narcissistic if they are appropriately and healthily is that they're then going to make it about them because the narcissist doesn't have a solid sense of self and everything that goes on is about them. They're empty inside, so the reflection of what's going on in the world. So if mom and dad are fighting, it's their fault. If mom and dad divorce, it's their fault. If they're having stress about something, it's their fault. They did something wrong because they always have to make it about them. And so during sexual abuse, a child will blame themselves. Because that's the world is all about them. Then, and of course, plenty, plenty of pedophiles and perpetrators blame the child for seducing them, which is absolute nonsense. And well, I'll just briefly do an aside here. If I hear one more 30-year-old say that that 16-year-old girl seduced him, I just want to take him out and shoot him, frankly. I'm being obviously metaphoric, not literal. But it is the adult's job to hold the boundaries with children. It is not the child's job to hold the boundaries with an adult. And a teenager, naturally and appropriately, is exercising their sexuality. They're exploring the boundaries of their sexuality. They're finding where their power is. And a girl's job is to be seductive to some degree to find out how this works. A boy's job is to be seductive to find out how this works. And But it's the adult's job to hold that boundary so that the child is not intruded upon, is not harmed in this process. The kids have to have space to find out who they are. And it's the job, parents and the adult's jobs to hold that container so that they can. And it's just another example. Almost always when you have – there are a couple of different kind of pedophiles, but we, there's certainly a very common one is when somebody was sexually abused by as a child themselves. And so they're developmentally – they may be 14, psychosexually speaking, and so a 14-year-old coming to them, onto them feels very natural or maybe younger. And so they may have a preference for very young children or only boys or only girls or there's many, many kinds of pedophiles. And so assuming they have the capacity for empathy, those people are healable. If they're a sociopath and they have no capacity for empathy for anyone else, those, those may not have been sexually abused. And two is they're not really treatable in the sense that they're not going to be able to stop doing this. So it's all very complicated, and there are so many tangents here. I feel like I could talk for about two days about all the different aspects of all these pieces, but I've dealt with a lot of this uh, for, for 30 years, and it's something that I feel passionate about. Uh, so what happens is, is that they're downloading this shame and assuming it's a pleasurable experience, they're going to marry shame and sexual energy. Those are two of the most powerful emotions in our body. And once those are married, they don't really get unmarried. Uh, once you're wired sexually, that's really a big chunk of how you're wired. Can it lessen? Can it become less the focal point? Yes, through appropriate work and help so that it doesn't – if your first initial experience was being spanked by dad and dad getting off that – and consequently, you could feel the pleasure of that experience, and so you associate being spanked with pleasure. And 
as I often say, there are good spankings and there are bad spankings, but there's also a difference between adults and children and adults. So consequently, uh, you're going to marry pain with pleasure. And it may be that mom got off on humiliating. And if she did, you're going to make that connection. So masochism and is bore out of these early sexual experiences. It could be, and it could be, again, overt or, co- or covert. Uh, there are just so many ways this stuff gets wired. It's not cut and dried and simple. We can't give it a little recipe. Everybody's unique and has their own experience. And consequently, it's a matter of stepping back and really looking at this and understanding what happened. A boy who's sexually initiated by a much older girl is going to be excited. And I'll give you a 15-year-old boy and a 19-year-old girl. He's going to be excited. He's also going to be terrified at some level of being inadequate. And depending upon how it goes, it may set up his fear about ever being adequate with any woman, even though he's quite competent sexually. But there's that still that 14-year-old or 15-year-old boy there who's unsure, who doesn't know, who's in literally over his head. And consequently, this then becomes the whole framework for him having sex. We do such bad things to children, and we do such bad things to each other. It's really problematic. But he has eroticized this experience because it was wildly pleasurable. But there's this other kid part of him that's stuck and like, oh, my God, how can I, how can I meet this woman's needs? How can I be enough for her? And so he is chronically lost in that part of the discussion and when he can get past it. And also he's also set up to be seduced because he isn't, doesn't know how to use his sexual energy to seduce. So he can only be seduced. So I call that being a bottom. Uh, I think the one in charge is the top, and the one being uh, the passive one is in, in the sense of, of not being in charge is the bottom. And so we have a society where women we put in charge in sex, women in a heterosexual marriage, most of the time will determine how often the sex is, what kind of sex, what position, et cetera, et cetera. So most heterosexually married men are bottoms, and the women are tops. Top male tops typically don't get married because they won't let someone control their sexuality or they uh, uh, will have affairs or have multiple partners. Uh, just, it's an interesting dynamic. And we like to think of top and bottom as the assertee and assertor, but that really isn't how it works. It's who's in control is really the issue. Uh, and so all these boys who uh, I, I'm, I'm certainly, I've seen a case similar to what I just described in terms of 14 and 9 year old. Then there's the ones that, who become tops because uh, they won't be controlled. And that's a, a part of the personality type. And they may have had some more power in the relationship. Uh, I, I, just, I can't tell you how often I've seen this. I mean, all the publicity or most of the publicity goes to male school teachers who seduce uh, girls, but I can tell you there's plenty of female school teachers out there having sex with their male students, and the male students are just considered lucky. And, and I've yet to meet one who wasn't profoundly, profoundly harmed by that. 
So if you combine sex and shame, that can become the, the necessary component for you to have uh, sex or at least to reach orgasm. And my favorite question in therapy is when we get into these topics, <laughs> I don't usually start out with this, uh, is to, so what is your sexual fantasy? What is it that is necessary for you to climax? And that's going to tell me a great deal about how you're wired. There's a really good book by Stanley Siegel called Your Brain on Sex that goes into a lot of this. Uh, he doesn't really talk about my next topic too much, but, uh, but he's really good, particularly talking about the eroticized shame. Uh, so let me just go to the polarity of that, which is the eroticized anger. Uh, so, and that's what I was alluding to, these boys who become aggressive tops. This is the way they're going to get their needs met is to take control. Or they have saw dad being a bully or mom being a bully and getting off on it. Bullying, in my experience, or in my opinion, is the eroticized anger. Bullying is, is, comes out of your erotic energy you the ability to demean, to diminish, to reduce someone else comes out of your own sense of power, and there's an erotic charge to that. And if Junior watches your parents do that, he's likely going to imitate that behavior because children download their parents' behavior. And in my own personal opinion, children tend to download the worst aspects of their parents and then reflect them back to the parent, and that's where the conflict comes uh, between the parent and child is because of this endless dance and the parent. So in a kind of a weird twisted way, that's the universe's uh, method of trying to get the parent to heal their own stuff. But then they've set up this whole dynamic in the child and a child is, is monkey see monkey do. They're going to take on whatever their parent is putting out there, even though the parent may not realize it. I remember a gentleman who was in, in the South, very sweet man, but who's incredibly sarcastic. And he had several boys. And when they started growing up, they were sarcastic too. And he did not like it nearly as much coming back at him. And this is not, not at all uncommon in these kind of relationships. Okay, so eroticized anger, uh, a boy who was um, emotionally intruded upon, this is particularly true of sexual incest, is that he may not understand why he's angry. He just knows that he's angry at women, at women, uh, because he was emotionally incested. He had no defense against having to meet his mother's needs. He had no defense against this intrusion, where she used him to get her needs met, and it was about her and not him. So the way he uh, deals with that, he's eroticized that experience, and so he's going to take and act out that. Uh, rage on women, assuming he's heterosexual. And so uh, that's where rape comes from. That's where uh, this hookup culture has a lot of, of roots in it. And so he turns into revenge in terms of the, I can't trust you. And if you get too close to me, you'll devour me. So I'm going to keep abusing you and pushing you away from me. And it, this becomes a sick cycle. And, and then if the girl had an abusive father emotionally and or physically, and this is like a marriage made in pathology heaven and that they have found each other. And this is how the dance of intimacy that they learned in their family. So consequently, they are acting this out. And it's not healthy for either. It's your four-year-old who's married my four-year-old. 
and as I often say, couples therapy is all too often your feces is, uh, is my feces is more important than your feces, and it's really, really painful. Uh, and then the last of the five uh, responses to it is focusing on the shame or humiliation. This is where the experience was probably not pleasurable. Uh, could have been quite painful, actually. Forced anal intercourse with no lubrication or just forced anal intercourse in general of an adult on a child uh, is excruciatingly painful. It's also intrusive. Or a young boy uh, being forced, encouraged to give oral sex to an adult, this is not probably going to be pleasurable to him and virtually any way. And so consequently, he's focused on the pain and humiliation of this because he's feeling humiliated by the experience and he's overwhelmed by all the sexual energy coming toward him that he doesn't know what to do with or how to handle. And so, and if he's a straight boy, uh, then it's, then it's a whole nother set of, of problems there. And so there's no pleasure in the experience. And so he's just in agony and pain. And so those are the five different gross categories uh, there's freezing compliance, there's the occluded memory or dissociation, there is the eroticized shame, there is the eroticized anger, and then there's focusing simply on the shame and humiliation. But some combination thereof, or predominantly one, maybe a little another, is how all boys in my experience uh, have come out of this. And you have to go back and unwind that deal with the pain of that. And the only way through dealing with all this is the pain, is you have to go back and heal it. Otherwise, you can't just paper over it. You can't just say, well, yeah, that happened. I'm not going to deal with that. I've had way too many people say, well, just don't talk about it. I talk about it. I knew this person whose niece was, was sexually abused, and his advice to them, because he'd been sexually abused, in childhood was, well, just don't talk about it. It'll just go away. It doesn't just go away. This is, if it's your, especially if it's your first sexual experience, this sets the frame for your sexuality. It has to be go back and unwound. And the earlier, the better. The longer it's in there, if you're uh, a masochist or, or, or into eroticized shame and you need to be humiliated or degraded in order to feel worthy of sex and you keep replaying this it and that becomes an identity then that's just who you are and that gets harder and harder to unwind a person who comes to me who's been depressed their entire life and we've worked on the underlying things and there's really no depression going on there they have to take a leap of faith that there's something else there for them on the other side because they don't know they've never experienced that and so when doing all this work around sexuality, particularly the older you get, the harder it is to let it go because that's become such a part of your identity. There's an article on my website called Who Am I? It's in the article section. I think it's even on the front page at the moment. I just recently posted it. But I talk about taking on anything as an identity, whether uh, it's a mom or a dad or a businessman or if you're a fireman or policeman, anything that becomes who you are is problematic because then you've locked in, and this is the narrow parameter of how you exist in the world. These are all good, useful labels to be able to describe aspects of ourselves, 
But if it becomes the, the, the identity of who you are, then, then you don't have any space to grow and evolve and change and become the fullness of yourself. A mother who's only a mother and then badgers her children to have grandchildren so she can be a grandmother, or she gets a dog or a cat because she has to have something to mother when the children go away, or she just feels empty, that's sad because there's so much more to this person than just being a mother. Same is true for a father. I mean, that's why so many businessmen die after they retire because their whole identity is tied up into being that. So if your whole sexual identity is tied up in being a, a dumb or a submissive or uh, whatever that is, then that's problematic because that means there isn't room for evolution, there isn't room for growth, and you need to go back and heal that. And there's no more effective tool out there than EMDR, in my opinion. It's a game changer. It's a paradigm shift in psychotherapy. And I can, a woman can come to me, and in a single session, after we've established the rapport and I've done my due assessment and so forth, assuming she's appropriate for EMDR, I can resolve the rape generally in one session. And it's simply a memory that's there that doesn't have any charge on it. And I know that's almost impossible for anyone to believe who's been sexually assaulted, but it is entirely possible. And it's truly amazing. So, and sometimes when you have a long history of abuse, it's going to take more work. There's no more effective tool than EMDR out there in terms of uh, healing this kind of pain and trauma. EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization Reprocessing. Uh, there's a website called EMDR uh, uh, <laughs> IA.org. EMDR International Association.org will give you plenty of information. There's a massive directory there of EMDR therapists throughout the country. The problem is, is that not all therapists are trained in sexual abuse. One of the things that breaks my heart more than anything else is these men who come to me who have been to therapist after therapist and they've been humiliated or shamed and told to get over it or they were lucky and they're making a big deal out of nothing because we as a society do not like to think of men as victims, one. Two is a lot of therapists have been sexually abused themselves and can't deal with other people being sexually abused. Three is that since a lot of therapists are women and are also sexual abuse survivors, they just can't deal with the fact that, that this happened uh, to a man because that, would, that changes their whole viewpoint of men. I've seen it over and over and over, and it breaks my heart because we're, as a therapist, we have to heal ourselves. And as human beings, we have to heal ourselves. And it's just really incredibly important that that happens. Um, trying to think about where to go next. Do, do you have any questions, Patricia, for me at this point? Anything you want me to elaborate on that I've been going on? You've had me almost in tears. <laughs> and I'm trying really hard to stay composed. Um, and and it's like, this is, this is really hard. It's really, really hard um, uh, to listen. I'm sorry. And uh, But it's necessary and it's meaningful. Yeah. And my, my biggest concern is that I don't want to take up any of your time because we lost 30 minutes in the beginning. Yeah. And I'm, when I, I'm when I reached case, out to you. Anything, 
Yeah. It it has been so much. It has been so much. Um, you talked about two movies. Um, and so definitely I'm going to want to post those up on uh, – I was writing an article while you were talking, trying to capture some of the things on LinkedIn uh, ah. about what you were saying. So I, I'm, like, triple-tasking on it. So I'm, I'm listening to you. And so the article that you talked about, Who Am I?, on your website, yes. I went and got that, and I brought that over to LinkedIn. So um, that's that's what I'm doing. I'm riding along. I'm in the background, and I'm listening and uh, grabbing out the nuggets that I can when I'm not on the verge of crying. <laughs> I'm covering well, a lot I, of ground here. I'm concerned about people oh, being but, overwhelmed because I'm just hitting um, so many things here. You are, but it's like... I'm listening to it, and I'm hearing it, and it's, like, uh, resonating with me. And Mm. so I am a woman, and it's Mm. resonating with me. So Yeah, this applies to women as well as men, yeah. No, 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 no. But what I'm saying is is that I'm I'm hopeful that what's resonating with me, not because I'm a woman, because I really remember we were having this conversation that I do my best to factor my gender out of it. I'm, I'm trying to just reach yeah. into my humanity. And, like, how would I sure. be treated as a human being? How would I expect yes. someone to treat me as a human being? You know, never mind the fact mm. that I come built as a woman or whatever mm. to simply say this, that I expect you to treat me this, this, and this, and this. I expect for you to treat mm. me a certain way because I'm a human being. So do I like having the door open for me? Do I like having the chair open? Yes, I do. But at the end of the day, <laughs> At the end of the day, if if I if I was nothing else except for a human being, okay, yes, because there are some people, you know, who what for whatever reason, you know, it's like we we as a group of people on this earth having a human experience are inside yes. of bodies, and we are spirits having this human experience. But the damage that's being done to the spirit. It's when the spirit becomes so damaged that oh, yeah. it can no longer stay yeah. inside of the body. That's what, mm. that's who and what I'm trying to reach. I'm trying to reach yeah. that wounded spirit, that wounded soul inside of the human being. And right now okay. my focus is on men. In the past my focus has been on women. So you talking about men and women together, I'm fine with that. And I okay. don't want to interject myself into it, I really, truly have set this up for you to continue to flow. And closer towards the end, maybe like the last 15 minutes, I'll come in and, you know, we'll recycle over some things. But right now, it's all yours. Okay. All right. Very good. I just want to check in. Thank you. So let me talk. I've been talking mostly about the experience of heterosexual boys being sexually abused. So let me talk about the experience of gay boys who are sexually abused. Gay boys, uh, the official statistics uh, last I saw was one in three women and one in four boys. I actually think it's closer to one and two women and one in three boys in uh, my experience. Uh, Boys are just so grossly underreported, and I can tell you I've worked with plenty of straight men who um, don't um, acknowledge that they were sexually abused, especially if it was by women or a gay boy who who was sexually abused by a male because it was such a highly 
uh, erotic experience and they focus on the erotic, the pleasurable aspect of the, and, uh, and ignore the rest of it, even though it can have really horrible consequences in their life. I don't believe in sexual addiction. I think it's nonsense. I think it's sexual compulsivity from sexual trauma. And in my experience is when you heal the sexual trauma, the compulsivity just goes away. It's just really, and, and to pathologize people's sexuality, I think is unforgivable. Uh, and because we do enough pathologizing of sexuality in our cultures as it is, and this is just, I mean, in, a, in, in SAA and SLA and all those, they pathologize masturbation. I mean, give me a break. I mean, uh, I would much prefer a harm reduction model uh, where uh, you start to look at the consequences of what's going on and reducing and and coming to a different understanding of it rather than this prohibition and abstinence model, which is just nonsense. Anyway, enough of my bitching about that. Uh, there's a web, there's a video on my website called uh, the myth of sexual addiction. There's an article on my website called shedding light on the sexual abuse of boys and the men that they come. I go to these five things on there plus a whole lot more. Uh, so anyway, back to what I was going to talk about uh, men who were sexually abused as children, I mean, uh, the gay boys. So gay boys are more likely to be sexually abused than straight boys because gay boys grow up tend to feel isolated. Intuitively, they may know or believe that uh, they're in harm if they reveal who they really are. So that becomes a shadow uh, uh, that they are hiding. And so consequently, when they get the attention from this male or other males, it may be the first time that they feel seen in some way. And so uh, they may be on the outside a willing participant. They're still damaged by the experience. There's still way more than psych physiologically and psychologically they can handle that level of sexual charge. They're overwhelmed. You have that blockage that, ha that happens that keeps them from progressing. But I've had plenty of gay men who talked about being molested by two Catholic priests with the greatest experience of their life, but they've never been in a relationship. They're going from one sexual experience to the next. They're just simply reliving that over and over and over again, and they're stuck in that loop, or I would say the repetition compulsion is the clinical term. So, uh, and, sex, and sexual abuse does not determine gen, sexual orientation. It does not determine gender orientation. It can confuse things, particularly a straight boy who has a very pleasurable experience. He gets uh, oral sex from uh, an older guy, and it's very pleasurable. And it's like, but how can it be pleasurable? Well, a, a, a child is particularly an adolescent boy from, say, 12 to 22 or 25. is basically a walking hormone. And so with a, a persistent uh, erection, and so consequently, any sense of pleasure, they're out looking for pleasure. That's really, we're kind of biologically wired because we didn't live that long. And so having that early onset of a lot of sex in order to breed before you die, is just built into the biology. But we live a lot longer and we have a lot more opportunities. And so uh, it can create confusion, but uh, my definition of sexual orientation is a unification of the heart and the genitals. And for some guys, it's a split for various. I talked about that earlier in, in some of these men that I talked about. Who, and it, again, it goes back to your attachment, the developmental relationship with each of your parents and how uh, attached you were to each of them. If you're attached to one but not the other, that means you're going to have a predominant relationship with the one that you're attached to uh, emotionally. 
uh, and the other one that you're going to avoid because that you didn't ever get that downloaded. You don't have the trust. You don't have that built into your wiring. It is changeable, but you generally have to go into therapy to do that. Uh, also, I'll make a plug here for my book, Facing the Truth of Your Life. I cover a lot of this ground in the book and a lot more. Uh, it really explains how you became you. Uh, and it gives lots of questionnaires. There's lots of um, information about all this programming and downloading that I'm talking about. It's called Facing the Truth of Your Life. Powerful book. A lot of men have wrote me and told me they've read the book and it just ended their sexual compulsivity. They suddenly understood what was going on inside of them. I've had people totally just bring them an incredible sense of peace. Uh, it's all really uh, useful uh, for them to do that. So read the book. It's not light and fluffy. Uh, it's not a typical self-help book. <clears throat> it's mostly referred to as a textbook. And because it, there's so much information, usually a self-help book has one or two ideas, and they spread that over 200 pages and charge you $20. This is 320 pages, lots of exercises, uh, and it covers an enormous amount of ground. It was uh, the book I wrote after I stopped doing private practice four years ago. Uh, and went to uh, take a sabbatical. So I'm back from sabbatical, and I have a few clients, but mostly I do workshops and I do the uh, intensives that she described. And I, a lot, I can do a lot in 10 hours over five days uh, to really do a lot of healing. Uh, so, yeah, so um, there's just so many ways that the boys are impacted by this, and that's why there's so much sexual acting out. That's why all these strange behaviors, I think all BDSM is eroticized shame and eroticized anger. And again, I don't have anything against BDSM. I think it'd be great fun as long as it's adults doing it. If you regress in the act of doing it, then it's a problem. And again, when we have these uh, parts of ourselves, we're going along and we and something happens, and all of a sudden we're back to being six years old and standing in front of the library, and Dad didn't pick us up. Or we're back to being three years old in the bathtub, and Mom making fun of us or humiliating us in some way. At least that's how we saw it, and we're back there. So, and once these child parts show up, the child part is in charge until it goes back into hiding. And we call these split-off parts, or in structural dissociation, we call it emotional parts. Uh, we have all these different lovely names, <laughs> all basically saying the same thing. Um, uh, and so we have to go back and rescue those child parts. And then we're not only just the child parts who were sexually abused, but the child parts that were humiliated, abandoned, all these different things that we do to children. Childhood, nobody gets through unscathed. It wasn't designed that way. It's a, it's a school. It's an endless school to, to learn about who we are, to learn about how the world works and how we're going to function in it. And there's trauma for everybody. Nobody gets through this fully whole. And some people get much better. They have a solid connection to mom and dad. They've had the opportunity to explore who they are and to test their limits and to try and fail and learn from how then to problem solve. If you don't learn how to problem solve in childhood, you're impaired as an adult. Because life is about problem solving. And this, if you were sexually abused as a child, it's a problem to be solved. And it is solvable. But you have to find somebody who's competent, who knows what they're doing, and who has compassion and also isn't going to get lost 
in the story or the drama. They can actually hold your hand and help you walk through that to a different kind of outcome. Again, once shame has been eroticized, uh, once anger has been eroticized, it's probably going to be a part of your sexuality. But does it have to be the centerpiece of your sexuality? Does it have to be the, your only way that you can reach orgasm? No. But you have to work on the roots of this, and you have to disconnect your identity from that being who you are and let it simply being an aspect of your sexuality. And you may be shocked at just how much broader your sexuality can be, your sexual experience, your sexual pleasure, and the availability of, of bringing that into the fullness of your life. Sexual abuse is not the end. It's simply a stop along the way. And each life is unique. Each life is different. I don't believe in being a victim. I believe that we are victimized. And if you take on the identity of a victim, again, you're limiting the possibility of your growth. You're limiting the possibility of becoming who you can be and the evolution of your sense of self, which is actually one of the most important things that we have. And the last but not least here before I go back to Patricia is that the job is really to develop an observing ego. We are not our thoughts in spite of I think, therefore I am nonsense, and we are not our feelings. Those are both information things that, uh, that are uh, to inform us. But the point of meditation is to develop that observing ego, this part of you that is not your thoughts, that's not your feelings, that observes what's going on. And that's the closest to the real you as you're going to get. And by strengthening that and making that the predominant, it's like I'm going along and I'm suddenly I'm feeling this thing like, okay, what's that feeling about? Where's that coming from? What's that connected to? I'm not lost in it. It's just information. Or I'll suddenly I'm thinking about this. Why did that thought come up? What's going on? And so, again, something triggered that. That's information for me to, to observe and to deepen into and see what's coming up out of my unconscious. And so it's imperative that we not take our thoughts that seriously, that we not take our emotions that seriously. They're simply information. And that developing that observing ego it to me is one of the most important and fundamental parts of therapy or of life, but often it's in therapy that we get help in doing that. So uh, it's about the last 15 minutes here. So Patricia said she wanted to come back on. So uh, any questions, anything you want me to elucidate more on? I really don't want to come back on. <laughs> 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 I really don't want to make on. Why? Um, yeah. Well, I can I can figure out something else to talk about here. I suspect I just wanted to give you the chance to talk about that. I'm gonna put this. I'm gonna um, put this out here, you know, and it's not something that I'm ashamed of. Um, I've written about it in my book, but um, I just don't for a moment because I really don't want this to be about me. And yeah. um, all I can say is that I personally have been abused by both men and women. Mm, okay. Happens a lot. From, the, from an early stage yep. up until I'm sorry. You know, no 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 apology. You didn't do it at the age, you know, thirty, mm-hmm. you know, twenty twenty five. So from say from basically from birth to twenty five. Yeah. And not uncommon. I have not 
um, had issues of wanting to be with a woman. I haven't had those tendencies or anything. And you would mm. think that I would be yeah. you would think that I would be totally put off by relationship and sex altogether. But I'm not. So I was always attracted to men and mm. never attracted to women. But mm. in this instance of what you're talking about, I have personal experience in this area that I know for a fact that I'm not the only one, and that's why I'm doing this show. I'm not the only one. Right. And in the lifetime, a perpetrator can cre- create at least 400 victims or more. And mm. for me, my, my journey away from all the pain was is that when I chose to stop calling myself a victim, and you touched on yes. that. And yes. no one taught me that. No one taught me that. It wasn't therapy. I haven't had extensive therapy or anything. But it was a resolve inside of me that if I continue yes. to identify as a victim, I will never get out of this mindset. And then I moved from saying, okay, I was a victim, and I was victimized. That's the past. Yes. So yes. Then I moved into survival mode. And once I moved yes. from survival mode, I said, I'm tired of surviving. Just surviving. I want to do more than just survive. And then yep. I went from survival mode and surviving to thriving. And once I went yes. into thriving mode, I was able to get into a position where I was overcoming. I was overcoming my past. And so for me, having you here on this show has helped me because I have never been aligned or nobody, people have asked me different questions and different scenarios, and and I've never been able to be labeled or put in a box. I've never been able to just fit into that round circle or that square of what society thinks that I should say, do, Mm. or represent. And now I'm grateful for that because now I can have the conversations that I'm having. Yes. Because I've, I've yes. never been all women, all, I mean, I'm all about the women's movement, I'm all about the men's movement. I have come into who I am because of what I've gone through to be just about the human being. You know, mm-hmm. if we can just get down to pe- treating people according to the human rights that we're supposed to be afforded. So I'm grateful now after having you on the show. I honestly, it was like clarity while you were talking to me, it's like, that's why I couldn't just go and, and just be with the women and I couldn't just go no. and just be with the men. I've always been this person where I just, you know, charted my own path. And, you know, I, I don't fall into things that are, you know, just about this and about that because my voice didn't fit. My mindset, right. my thoughts didn't fit with, you know, I'm 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 a woman's liver, I'm a feminist, I'm this, I'm that, or you know, I'm all about uh, you know this or that with the men's side. It, it has always been about how you treat one another as human beings. That if your human yes. dignity is being violated, then it doesn't matter whether you're male, female, black, white, polka dot, whatever. It is. I'm sorry. Now I'm about to break. <laughs> it's imperative. <laughs> it's imperative to meet to be a voice because I grew up seeing abuse. I grew up being abused. 
I grew up seeing men being abused. And so when I hear people yeah. say that it's impossible, I live with that impossibility. I read yeah. that impossibility. I did not become what I grew up with. I did not become what was done to me. I've never, ever, ever had a thought about harming another child, another human being in my life. And because of that, I, I, I'm faced with people who talk to me about things, hidden things, secret things. I, I you know, experience and I see things. And people feel like they can just come and just tell me anything because I don't have those uh, rose-colored glasses. I don't have yeah. those barriers and say, you know, I, I don't have this mental block in my mind that say that couldn't, that, you know, that couldn't have happened. That's impossible. And so because we have these labels and these boxes where everything has to sit here and sit here and sit there, that we cannot perceive or even allow ourselves to get out of the bubble that our society has put us in, that our culture has put us in. This issue is something bigger than the four walls of the church, than politics. Oh, this absolutely. is sure. about we have to come to the table and say, you know what, at the end of the day, we're all human beings, and what is a human being entitled to? And when the things mm-hmm. of a human being have been violated, whether it's by man or woman or both, what is the response of our society? What are we going to do about it? And how long? Are we supposed to be silent? Don't say to me, well, you can't do this or you shouldn't do this. Tell me what I can do. Tell me how to get it done. Tell me when to get it done and tell me what to do. So that's why I have this show because I have a voice and I want my voice to be heard. If I can make a difference, if I can start a conversation, I'm not trying to start a fight. I'm trying to start a healing that needs to happen. It needs to happen from Mm -hmm. the bottom up. The church that we know that some people call the church, it is, it has, I I have, and I say this, I was abused by secular people and religious people, okay? I was abused by religious people who said that, you know, they were religious. So I, I came up where I could have had a twisted sense of God, a twisted sense of what church or religion was supposed to be. But I've had something inside of me that people tell me was hope. And I remember reading the story about Pandora's box. And when all the chaos Mm. came out of the box, the last thing to come out was hope. And, you know, Mm. even though that's a mystical way to explain it, the only thing in my life that has kept me was my hope, was my hope that I would see a brighter day, that I would see a brighter tomorrow, a brighter future, that I was going to be better than the circumstances that I was putting in. That hope has kept me and my hope and my faith and my belief in God. So I don't need someone to believe what I believe. I, I, I'm perfectly fine if you've never, and I'm not talking about you, I'm saying to the audience, I'm perfectly fine with you. If you're okay with not believing what I believe, I'm fine with that because at the end of the day, it's your decision, it's your choice. Because you, you right. have choices set before you every day, and it's up to you to choose. But when your choices affect me, then I have a problem. I have a problem with that. So my voice is important to me. My voice is important to me, and I've been silent for a long time. I was silent, you know, for years because I kept waiting for somebody else to do it. I kept waiting for somebody else to say it. So I, I don't know who else is saying what I'm saying, who else is doing what I'm doing, but they're not me, and nobody can do me like I can do me. 
So this is the platform that I'm creating. This is the network that I'm building. I want it to be safe for a human being to come out and not be judged, not be condemned by your gender when you go to tell your story. Tell your story. It's your truth. It's, it's what you live through. And I have seen where, say, just, for example, five people in the family, and the perpetrator, be it the mother the father, chooses one child but doesn't do anything to the other four children. So when the other four children hear the one child say, Mom, Dad, did this to me, oh, that's a lie. Mom, Dad never did any of that. That's a lie. That's the way a perpetrator works. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, well, they well they're children generally themselves, so they're rationalizing it like a child. So not that I'm justifying what their behavior actions are, but I do try and have an understanding. And many of them can heal. Some can't, as I talked about earlier. And so, um, and many people take on religion as an identity too, so which is problematic. Religion is simply yeah. information, yeah. and but it's not an identity. If you t- but that's but that's usually done by people who are empty inside, and so they're downloading something externally to give them a structure that they don't have. It can be politics, it can be religion, it can be military, it can be a career. Is that they take on this identity as who they are, and that they're very rigid. And what you're describing, and I had a horrific childhood as well, and, and at this point in my life, I'm actually grateful for it because I couldn't do what I do without having gone through that. I know you can heal really horrible things because I went through it. So, uh, it, so and that's why I don't, you're here today. Yeah, that's why you're here today, <laughs> and that's why we had a horrible thirty minutes of getting this set up. And I'm so grateful that you did not give up and that you did not get upset and say, you know, forget it. I'm not going to do the show. Thank you so much. And I would love to have you back on the show. Please, please come back and let's continue to have this conversation. Okay. And okay. I, like I said, I, I posted the Who Am I article. And, I, you know, I posted several of your videos on Home Union on my, on my social media and a couple right. other videos that you've done on my social media as well. So I think you'll probably see those. And I'm working on an article, and right now this is so fresh and so raw that it may take me a couple of days to complete that article. But I started an article, and I just I posted uh, I posted your website, and I posted um, you know some other videos that you did and some other. Great, I appreciate that. And at the end, I of love the day, because you care. That's a really good video for the spouses of the women or male partners of guys who are sexually abused, it, it's really uh, really important that. for them to watch that. Yeah, yeah it's I really useful. And then a man's journey is, the, is talking one. about the healing journey. So, yeah. 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 I've done I a lot of work one. on this, so I've done a lot of writing. And so, it, your, so your website is a wealth of information, and so it's simply Merle Yost, dot com. And please, yep. please, please accept my invitation to come back on the show. And once again, you've been on sure. the air with Patricia Adams Live. Thank you to all of those who are listening around the world. The audience, I've been looking at my demographics, and we have gone international. So, you know, this show has gained an international following, and I hope that it continues to grow and, and expand across the United States and across the world because this is a conversation that's necessary that has to come to the table. It needs to come out so that it will be safe for anybody to come out and tell their truth. So once again, Merle, thank you so much for being 
on with Patricia Adams Live and see you again soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you.